Support is provided in part by Conway Shield. Those who answer the call and risk it all for the safety and well-being of others deserve someone willing to give their all in return. Conway Shield is built on the shoulders of three service legacies. Customizing the nation's very best firefighting shields has expanded to providing the most effective technology, tools, and training for today's fire and law leaders. Learn more at ConwayShield.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Leadership Under Fire podcast. I'm your guest host today, Timothy Clark. I work as the Human Performance Data Analyst for Leadership Under Fire and was featured on the LUF podcast back in December 2019 discussing biometric data and performance. I'm a New York City firefighter working in Ladder Company 12 and a former professional triathlete and triathlon coach. Because of my background in sports, I'm humbled to have been asked by Patty and Jason to speak with today's guest, Brad Snyder. Brad is a multi-time Paralympic gold medalist in swimming and triathlon. In September 2011, while serving in the U.S. Navy, Brad stepped on an improvised explosive device in Afghanistan, rendering him completely blind. It wasn't long before Brad found a new purpose and dedicated himself to competing at the 2012 London Paralympics the following summer, winning a gold medal in swimming. Brad repeated this feat at the 2016 Rio de Janeiro Paralympics, but decided to switch gears this year in Tokyo, competing instead at the sport of triathlon. All told, Brad has won six gold and two silver medals at the Paralympics. Brad is a U.S. Naval Academy graduate and author of the book, Fire in My Eyes, An American Warrior's Journey from Being Blinded on the Battlefield to Gold Medal Victory. As if that were enough, Brad is also currently pursuing a PhD at Princeton in public policy. And somehow he finds time to join us today on the Leadership Under Fire podcast. So Brad, thank you very much for joining us and welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Tim. It's my pleasure. Uh, Thanks for having me. The pleasure is all ours. Again, uh, I reached out to Jason saying that uh, I, I knew I knew of this guy, Brad Snyder, who had done some really impressive things. And Jason Bresler, also a U.S. Naval Academy graduate, jumped at the opportunity to uh, to have you on have you on the podcast. Uh, I just so, want to say I feel just aptly my book title is perfect for the podcast. It's, it does. Yeah, exactly. It's <laughs> it really. Yeah. Fire in my eyes. Exactly right. Yeah. It's uh, it's we definitely have a theme in the uh, leadership under fire. Uh, ethos. That's right. That's right. <laughs> Yeah, so following your graduation from the U.S. Naval Academy, you decided to go into uh, the career field of explosive ordnance disposal, which is one of probably the most dangerous career fields that you can go to, especially uh, given the wars that were going on at the time in Iraq and Afghanistan. Why did you decide to go into that career field following your graduation? Yeah, so I uh, never really thought a whole lot about what I would do in the Navy. I grew up uh, with three out of my four grandparents all having served in the Navy in various capacities. And I kind of grew up hearing their stories and sort of always knew, and I never really made a decision that I would join the Navy. I just always knew that I would. And then when I got to the Naval Academy, when they first asked me, what do you want to do in the Navy? I just kind of was blown away. I I didn't have any idea. I, I, I had always figured that the Navy would just tell me what they wanted me to do. And that's what I thought the military was about. So, um, I, I didn't know at first, um, I spent a, a lot of time kind of just roaming around trying different things. Um, the Naval Academy does an awesome job of giving you the opportunity to, you know, you know, go to different parts of the Navy or the Marine Corps and assess whether that's a good fit for you. I got to go on a ballistic missile submarine. I actually got to fly a helicopter at one point. Um, and at the end of the day, I decided what I really wanted to do was scuba dive. So I asked uh, someone at the Naval Academy, what, what different communities scuba dive? And they said, well, two, there's the SEAL community and the EOD community. Um, I didn't know what EOD was, and so I kind of just defaulted to wanting to be a SEAL for three years, and uh, I did all of the sort of silly 
training indoctrination stuff leading up to trying to select into being a SEAL out of the Naval Academy. And then I, I kind of made a hard pivot after my junior year. Um, I actually had the opportunity to go down to Navy dive school. And while I was down there, I met an EOD tech who explained to me that at that time, EOD, explosive ordnance disposal, was the best kept secret in the Navy. It was this really awesome job where you got to do all these really, really cool things from scuba diving to jumping out of planes to blowing things up to preventing things from blowing up. It was a really interesting and cool small subset of the Navy. And, and the kind of the best part is that the community is composed of some really incredible individuals, very smart, very capable, very motivated, very physically fit individuals who are all just trying to make the best of themselves every day. And I thought, man, that sounds perfect for me. So I, I, I made a hard pivot after my junior year and never really looked back. That's pretty great. Do would the EOD guys, like, do you think they kind of err on the side of like a, like a sciencey sort of tech background? Yeah, it's interesting. I was literally on a meeting. I, I, I have a, I work on a nonprofit called the Navy Special Operations Foundation, and we are a nonprofit dedicated to supporting the EOD community, both families and active duty personnel. We were kind of talking about some of the fundamental differences between SEALs and EOD techs. And I don't know if you've had SEALs on the podcast. I wonder if they'd echo the same idea, but we, we, have, we yes. kind of talked about how SEALs lead with their hearts. They're very passionate. They're very, you know, get up and go, and they want to beat down the door, and they want to jump out of the aircraft, and they sort of lead with passion first. That's definitely not the EOD way. We're very, uh, very analytical. And, and if you think about it, I mean, what's core to our community is probably not so different than being a fireman, I have to imagine, is sort of threat assessment. How do you mitigate a chaotic situation and, and kind of uh, assess and evaluate and address multiple different safety hazards all at once? Every IED is complex and there's a lot of different things going on. It may affect a lot of things. It might affect the uh, integrity of a building, it might affect a local populace, it might affect a waterway. So we're kind of always looking at not only the actual device itself, but where is it seated and what is the, what are all the different variables at play and how do I mitigate those variables? So in that way, the community is very analytical, very threat, a threat assessment based, I would say. What were some of the tools you guys used in order to determine risk? And like, what, what did you determine to be, or how did you determine what was an acceptable level of risk? Oh, that's an interesting question. Uh, a lot of it's procedures based. So, I mean, we have a lot of charts that will tell you, you know, for, for every size of explosion, we know the blast and frag radius. So that's kind of the very first orientation you have for your problem. How, how big is the blast of that going to be? If it's a 10 pound explosion, a thousand pound explosion, where's that blast radius going to be? And then beyond the blast radius, if it's got, you know, basically every explosion is going to kick out stuff. Um, if it's got, if it's a, a metal encased piece of ordnance, it's got a very intended, you know, stuff that it's going to shoot out from that explosion. That's your frag radius. And that frag radius goes a lot further unless you've got something that can cover up the or protect you from from that frag. So that's your your first kind of diagnosis of the problem. We have all sorts of different tools then that will help us figure out what are we dealing with. Uh, most of my career, I spent a lot of time working on like IEDs in Iraq and Afghanistan, and we have different imaging devices. So when you have your night vision, of course, and that can help you see some things. We have thermal imagers that'll help you see certain other things. And that, you know, that's kind of context dependent. Uh, one of the kind of tactics we had in Iraq was uh, around sundown, uh, because metal remain, you know, retains its heat better than sand, you can use thermal imagery to see if there are something on the roadways. So there's those sorts of technologies are utilized to help you figure out what you're dealing with. 
And then uh, once you know where your problem is, then there's a whole host of tools, techniques, and procedures that we utilize to try to uh, maintain uh, our own safety while we try to remove the hazard from wherever it's seated. And this is kind of where you see some of the some of the stuff we're more known for, the bomb suit from that movie, The Hurt Locker. That's kind of uh, our probably most visible you know, mitigation technique on, on, on trying to preserve the bomb tech that's going down there. But one of the other things we use a lot in Iraq were robots. We have a lot of, we have two different primary types of robots that we can use to drive down range and, and do certain things to the, uh, to the IED itself to, to prevent any damage to us and um, try to mitigate that hazard and, and get it out of the way. Uh, and then we also like one of the most, what I use predominantly in Afghanistan and, and in working with partner forces who, who don't always have the same kind of resources, one of the most basic things we utilize is just basically a hook and some rope. Um, if you can, you know, put a hook on the IED and walk away, you know, 100 feet and then yank on that rope, sometimes you can take apart an IED that way. So, you know, the technologies that we utilize range in sophistication from thermal imagery to, you know, a paper clip and some uh, some fishing line, that sort of thing. But we're trained to kind of be adaptable in all those different situations and always kind of take each situation as a new situation, a new context, and you're never really rinsing and repeating. And I think that's one of the things that made, made the job kind of exciting was that, you know, every new day has got a new set of challenges and you have to take it, tackle it in a new way. We, we actually talk a lot about within leadership under fire and the New York City Fire Department, uh, this this idea of oversaturation of technology. Like there, there, yeah. is there is there a point at which technology becomes too much for us to handle from a human performance perspective, right? Like, am, am I taking in too much data input uh, that my brain, that my amygdala isn't able to handle under a high stress situation? I, I like how you guys, you know, talk about thermal imaging, but you also talk about a rope and a hook, you know, like the fire department's yeah. kind of the same way. Like we've been using yeah. halogens for the last hundred years, but we also yeah, exactly. moving yeah. on to like thermal imaging cameras and stuff like that. Uh, but there is a point we think that uh, whether it's just being oversaturated with gear that is just too heavy or too hot or too cumbersome or just technology that isn't necessarily the best thing to be utilized in the moment. Uh, have you guys dealt with that as a, as a career field? Um, not as much. I would say we were on that. By, by the time that I deployed, we were definitely on that path. There were lots of money and resources going towards giving us technological solutions that will allow us to mitigate risk. Uh, and there were really expensive, interesting solutions like the, the mine-resistant armor-protected vehicles, MRAPs was a big example of that. And MRAPs went kind of from a just very basic V-hauled vehicle to when I was in Iraq, we had a mast with a really, really expensive camera on it. We could use those cameras to see all the way around us. We had all kinds of different technologies that I probably can't even talk about on those different masts and, and at the FOBs themselves to help us gain information about our environment. Uh, but you're right. A lot of that information and a lot of that context is super useful, especially if you have time and you have the ability to get that technology on site. One of the nice filters, I guess, about being in Afghanistan was we weren't always able to get a vehicle or a helicopter to where we were. So what you have at your disposal is what you can carry on your back. So you're not always carrying all those sophisticated tools. I most certainly wasn't carrying a robot wherever I was in Afghanistan. So I guess that was kind of a nice, a nice filter on, on what I could utilize and bring to bear. Um, but I think you're 100% right. And we also live by this adage, don't let perfect get in the way of good enough is the phrase. So in an information saturated environment, you tend to sit back and say, well, I don't want to make a decision until I know all of the information and I want to make the exact right decision. Well, in high risk environments, sometimes you actually, you just have to act, you have to make the decision, the best decision based on the information that you have. And sometimes technology can be 
it can be uh, an enabler of that, but it also can be an impediment to that. To your point about if you're trying to gather too much information, it may get in the way of action. And, and I think in high stress environments, sometimes you just have to act. What are your thoughts on the Monday morning quarterbackers? You know, you, you make a decision in a high stress environment, you know, with the information you had available, and there's always going to be somebody there, probably people that even should know better uh, that are going to kind of second guess your decisions. I mean, have you ever dealt with that? And if so, what do you, how do you handle that? It's good when it's internal. And I, I would say it's a, it's, an, it's a really, really great practice. And I don't know what you guys do in, in your firehouse, but we always, every mission, we would always come back and we'd always have a really deep debrief. And it's right. when you have to walk into the room with a thick skin and you have to say, here's who did well, here's who screwed something up. You know, tactically, this is what we did. And, and we kind of go through the whole thing. Right, and, um, and, and after action review rather than a- Exactly. Right. Yeah, and, and you know, th that's good when it's productive. And the whole, I the whole idea is let's look back on that and we're not going to judge necessarily. We're not judging to say this guy's a moron or this guy's an idiot or whatever. It's really to say, you know, we all understand that when you're in that environment, you don't have a lot of time. You have to react. So you can't, you can't, you can't make yourself react differently, but you can train. You can train to react differently. So the, the point of those debriefs is to say, what do we need to train differently? What do you need to think about? What gear do you need to bring differently? That's going to make it so that when you hit that situation again in the future, you're going to react differently. I think that's where it's productive. Um, when that starts to move outside and you, you, you have external entities saying, well, you should have done this or you should have done that, uh, that's where it, it can get really problematic. And I think, you know, all, basically all high stress entities really kind of have to protect themselves to some extent from the Monday, the Monday morning quarterbacking or to some extent. But again, if you can make it productive internally, I think that's really not only useful, but it's critical. That's probably where leadership comes into play to kind of yeah. get the back and get the back of the guys on the, or the, the people on the ground who are, who are doing, doing things. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Protect your guys, protect your gals. And, and, but, and, but, but cop too, when you guys screw something up and, and you know, figure out how you're going to fix it and make it better yeah. the next time. Exactly. Right. Can you bring us back to September, 2011, when uh, you had your explosion? Can you tell us a little bit about, about the event and what happened? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so on the morning of September 7, 2011, we were on a patrol in Afghanistan. And uh, our job in Afghanistan was twofold. We were there to obviously uh, mitigate the Taliban's influence in that particular area, an area just to the, I think, southwest of Kandahar. But at the same time, we were there to train the, the Afghan. We were, we were there partnered with Afghan special forces. So our job was to give them, to train them, up to be able to do the same kinds of assault missions that we would hold ourselves to get on a helicopter, go into a particular place, sneak in in the middle of the night, uh, assert control of the village, uh, look for, you know, evidence or weapons or things of that nature to mitigate, you know, insurgent forces and so on and so forth. So our patrol was half Afghan, half American, uh, but we were operating in an area where the IED threat was so high that we elected to have either myself or my partner, Adam, the other EOD tech with our patrol, uh, walk out in front with a metal detector. It was really the talking about you know, mitigation of, of potential hazards. We, there were just too many and they were very hard to find. The safest way we could get from point A to point B was having someone out in front with a metal detector. Adam and I typically would take turns. Uh, I would clear for a while, he would clear for a while. And so he was on his shift more or less up there in the front. At about 7.30 in the morning, uh, from halfway back in our patrol, I saw a blast plume go up into the air, a big, thick cloud of dust. 
And I thought my buddy Adam had gotten hurt. In that situation, we train the whole assault platoon not to do anything. And we call it a post-blast environment. We call it a mind strike. And the, the mind strike drill, nobody's supposed to move except for me or Adam. And the, our, our goal is to use our metal detectors to create space around you know, the incident site so that a medic can get down there, render any immediate first aid. And then the next task is to clear a spot for a helicopter to come down and evacuate those casualties. That's kind of the drill as we do it up in training. And that's what we, we did a couple of times on deployment. So I ran up to the front of the patrol looking for the incident site. Um, in real life, when we do we, we drill it in back, you know, here in the States, it's a lot simpler, it's a lot quieter. In real life, it's chaotic, it's nuts. And uh, what you don't get in training is that a post-blast environment is probably much more what you're accustomed to. You can't see anything. It's a lot of dust and debris in the air. Uh, it makes it really harder to figure out what's going on. So I was gratified to see through the dust, I found my buddy Adam and he was fine. And he looks at me and he kind of gives me a WTF sort of sign. And I looked at him and did the same thing. Like you were up here, what happened? What we came to find out was two Afghan special forces guys stepped off of the path that Adam had cleared and uh, had landed on a, a 40 pound IED buried underneath the pressure plate. So when they, when they stepped on it, it was a big blast that affected two people. Um, they, they were both uh, mortally wounded from that particular blast, but at the time we didn't know that. And uh, so Adam and I set out about clearing space around that, those two casualties so we could get them out. Um, it, was a, it was a lot of work to get the first casualty back to where we could land a helicopter. And on my way back to Adam and the second casualty, I kind of made a quick calculation that was uh, pretty consequential. I took kind of a shortcut from where I was to where Adam was, and I was moving fast, and I thought I could get to him faster if I walked across this little area of grass. And I remember thinking, uh, I'm pretty safe on the grass, because what are the chances that an IED has been here so long that grass has grown on the top? Well, that's exactly what happened. There was an IED underneath a field of grass. So I, I, uh, I hit it on the way to Adam, and um, I remember everything up to the blast and then immediately following the blast, uh, I laid on the ground for a while and kind of had that Saving Private Ryan moment where time really slowed down, actually kind of stopped for me. And in that moment, I kind of thought through my whole life and I was actually convinced that I had died. But, you know, a, a few moments later, a miracle happened and Adam's voice came out of the fog and he cleared to me and got me up and I actually walked away from that blast and onto a helicopter that took me you know, back to the hospital and the hospital from the hospital, I was evacuated back to the States. And, and that's kind of the beginning of my rehab. So the, the majority of your injuries were, were isolated to your face, correct? Like you weren't, uh, yeah. no leg or torso injuries? Yeah, exactly. Um, the pressure plate and the IED were a little bit separated. So the pressure plate I stepped on, it actually blew up in front of me. So it mm -hmm. V-plumed out of the ground and smacked me in the face, knocked me backward. I had I had some burning on my right arm. The <laughs> IED was in a plastic jug. And so pieces of plastic melted onto my skin on my right arm. But that was really, oh, and I had my metal detector in my hand. I obviously wasn't sweeping very well because I would have found the IED if I was doing my job right but I, it jerked out of my hand and broke my this metacarpal on the outside. And then that was it. Other than, other than that, uh, all of it was to my face. I took most of it. I, I must've been kind of oblique to it because I took most of it on the right side of my face. My right eye was pretty destroyed. My left eye actually was at, at the very beginning was okay, but I eventually had to, I lost my right eye because a piece of debris had gone into my left uh, and caused an infection in the following weeks. But 
you know, it, at, at the grand, in the grand scheme, I was incredibly lucky to walk away and I was incredibly lucky that I got really, really quick care. So, um, you know, we were only really like about a 10 minute helicopter flight from the, the medical facility in Kandahar on our base. And we had already initiated the medevac because we had two casualties already. So it was really not very long from when I sustained my blast to when a helicopter picked me up. 10 minutes later, I was at a hospital and I was in surgery about a half an hour later. So like from battlefield to surgery was an insanely quick amount of time. And because of that, all the really kind of nasty wounds to my face uh, healed up fine. I mean, I don't know if you're, uh, you can see it on the, on the video or not, but I, I, I have a lot of scars on my face that you'd, or, or you'd have to get really close to see. And that's really a testament to the care I got immediately following my injury. Yeah, it's, it sounds like you had, uh, again, a little bit of a fortuitous uh, few hours after, after the explosion. Yeah, I mean, the whole way back was really fortuitous. I, I mean, I've traced out the path and it all said and done from the battlefield back to Walter Reed was 60 hours. And a lot of that was spent in surgery. I immediately went to surgery in Kandahar. Um, the surgeons there were hopeful that they might be able to salvage vision. I'm not sure what their theory was. Um, I, I've, I've since learned that my vision was gone kind of right from the get-go um, and, and there was really little hope, but they expedited me back and so I got on a quick flight to Longstuhl Air Force Base in Germany. I went to another surgery in Longstuhl and then immediately got on another flight back to the States and uh, all said and done. I mean, just an insanely short period of time from when I was injured to where I was getting really great care all the way back to the United States. So I'm really grateful for that. We talk a lot in Leadership Under Fire about resilience. Uh, in fact, as we record this, the most recent Leadership Under Fire podcast was by Dr. was a was an interview with Patty Murphy with uh Dr. George Bonanno, he's a academic at Columbia University, who's written a lot of books on resiliency and, and mourning after, say, a parent's death, and how we've actually yeah. evolved as a species, being probably a lot better at being more resilient than I think the the collective understanding shows today. Right? Mm -hmm. uh, can you talk to us a little bit about like post explosion, like from the time that you had your accident to the time that you were competing in the Paralympics was less than a year, if I'm not mistaken. Right. Yeah. So can you tell us a little bit about that period of your life, that resiliency? Like how, how did you go from this trauma to this excellence, you know, just a, a year later? Well, for me, I, uh, I think it's important to kind of reframe it. What's really interesting about it is when I was in the hospital, a lot of my family, all my family and my friends were, were really deeply affected and worried and uh, uncertain about how blindness would sort of affect my life. And so blindness was the big focal point of the conversation. But for me, my experience was very different. I mean, I thought that I had died. I came as close as you can get to dying and I didn't. You know, whether I medically was close to dying or not is not super relevant. What I, you know, in my brain, I thought that I had died. And, and not only did I think that I had died, I sort of went through this mental process where I accounted for my whole life and I thought about everything. And I had kind of made this very conscious like, okay, I'm dying. I'm, I'm proud of the life that I've lived, but I'm ready for whatever happens afterward. Uh, but then I came back from that. And so really for me coming back, you know, going into the hospital, for one, I felt relieved that I wasn't going back into the battle space. Um, you know, I was doing a very risky job and I'm not a moron. I knew how risky it was. And I had frequently thought about, you know, that every time I stepped off the helicopter, I thought, you know, this might be the last time I step off this helicopter. And so 
Uh, I was somewhat relieved uh, that I, not, I wasn't going back to the battle space. I was incredibly grateful to still be alive. And, you know, I, I've been doing this job a long time and, and a lot of folks have gotten hurt. A lot of my friends have lost legs, lost limbs. Uh, a lot of my friends haven't come back at all. So it was relatively easy for me to put in perspective that I was very grateful to be alive. And sure, I, I lost my vision, but, you know, I'm not the first blind guy. I'm not the last blind guy. There are ways to, you know, work around blindness. There's Braille and there's, uh, by the way, I don't read Braille, but there is Braille if you <laughs> wanted to, you wanted to use that. And there's Apple products that have these, you know, speaking computers and there's guide dogs and there's canes. And, you know, a lot of people have figured that out. I was pretty confident that you can give me the right tools. I'm going to be able to figure it out. And part of the reason I had confidence in that is goes back to that sort of military training, you know, as an EOD tech, we're trained to jump out of aircraft. We're trained to scuba dive. We're trained to build explosive charges. We're trained to uh, mitigate explosive hazards. We're trained to do all kinds of really crazy stuff. And across all of those different training modules, on day one of training module X, you know nothing about what you're supposed to do. And by day five, you're sort of expected to be a master at that. And I'm, I'm sure in your experience, you can echo similar kind of cases where, you know, on the first day of of training, you don't know anything. And then by day five, they expect you to have some sort of mastery. And so I've been through that challenge loop so many times in my career and in my personal life that I really was able to kind of look at blindness as a new challenge. Like, okay, the, you know, the challenge today is not scuba diving. It's not free fall. It's uh, how do you do things without being able to see? And um, I really kind of got I got really dialed in and focused on that is my new mission. You know, what, what are the tools that I have to use? What are the techniques I can kind of implement in my life? How can I get myself organized? How can I kind of build practices and habits around not being able to see? And how can I get back that sort of efficiency and, you know, engagement that I had before I lost my vision? And I think that's what it enabled me to succeed. Sports was really just helpful that I went back to something that I had been good at. Uh, before I lost my vision and be kind of being able to jump into the pool was a nice respite in that it wasn't, you know, wasn't completely foreign. And uh, I was able to kind of make that, that quick jump into pursuing excellence in that endeavor. Do you, I mean, so it sounds to me, this is kind of a, a nature nurture question, but it, it sounds to me like you, you feel that you've been training your resilience your whole life. Right. Yeah. Like, so you, you, everything you've encountered, whether through, through the Naval Academy or becoming a Naval officer has kind of prepared you for this phase of your life, this resilience that you have, or do you think it yeah, was something yeah, that sure. like this, because again, the, the whole, the idea that a 17 year old can decide that they want to put themselves through something like the Naval Academy, I just find to be a mind blowingly fascinating idea. Just a 17 year old that knows what they want to do with themselves, whether it be a lawyer or a firefighter or, or a military person uh, is just, is just incredible. But to then go about it in a way where you're choosing probably the most difficult <laughs> avenues among that being, you know, uh, a premier American military Academy. Like, so my question is, do you think it's something that was ingrained inside of you uh, from a very early age, or it's something that you've developed over a lifetime of challenging yourself that made you super adaptable and amazingly resilient after, uh, after the explosion. Well, I appreciate the kind words. Uh, I, I think it's a little bit of both. I think what I had from a nature perspective was a competitive fire. I am competitive. I like to win and it doesn't always have to be against someone else. Like I'm competitive with myself. Like I want every day I work out, I want to beat 
I, I want to put bet, bigger, uh, more watts into the bike. I want to run a faster pace. I want to do a time trial thing that I did a week ago. I want to do it a little bit faster. That's something that is innate in me. That's not something that I trained. That's just who I was when I started athletics at, at 11 years old. What I trained though was, you know, I think like when I got into swimming, my dad had this framework about like swimming was more than just swimming to my dad. It wasn't to me at first. And I always thought my dad was kind of crazy, but swimming was this vehicle to develop virtue. My dad had this view of, you know, committing to a swimming goal and really putting yourself out there and training hard towards that goal teaches you courage. It teaches you dedication. It teaches you all these different kind of core aspects of your character that are really important. And I think that kind of laid a foundation for me to start heading down on that pathway of like always challenging myself and developing and honing those core character attributes or virtues. Uh, and that, that's definitely driven home at a place like the Academy. And I agree with you. I have no idea how 17 year olds do that. I look back at myself and I kind of think, man, I'm lucky that I, I stumbled across that as a great idea because it really set me up for success. When I was but, 17, um, I was super excited about going to college and <laughs> drinking beers and having a good time. And I was not thinking military academy. I'll tell you that. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm just grateful that someone put that idea in my head. My grandfather, I'm glad I'm glad have had my grandfather to kind of put that in my head. Um, but I, uh, I actually had the opportunity to go back to the academy in the last couple of years to teach. And uh, I was frequently asked to teach on this topic of resilience. And I, I'm, I don't have nearly the, the breadth of knowledge of your previous guest, but to frame it in a, in a very practical way, I talked to my midshipmen about this notion of reps, like, and it's a very kind of basic idea. And the idea is, if you want to get better at something, what do you do? You do that thing. You do it a bunch of times. You want to get better at push-ups, you do push-ups. If you want to do pull-ups and get better at pull-ups, you do pull-ups. You want to get better on the bike, you put your, your butt in the saddle and you ride, you know? And the idea of like, you can't, you're not going to be a resilient person innately uh, unless you go through hardship, unless you put yourself in challenging environments and you navigate that environment and you learn about yourself, you develop your ability to react in those situations, uh, you develop those core character attributes of being dedicated, being courageous, and you kind of work your way up and you, you're not going to get there unless you do reps. So I, I think, you know, all those reps counted from whether it was age group swimming and in, in, uh, when I was younger um, all the way through collegiate athletics, uh, all the different kind of reps we do in, in the classroom and out the classroom and at the Naval Academy, I think it's all sort of intentional at getting you to this kind of a, a more resilient foundation of your character. And I think that got put to the test for me on September 7, 2011. Uh, but I think my reaction to that, it was a result of all that training. My reaction was, okay, you know, this is a new challenge. It's not the first time I've been challenged. I've done those reps. Now I'm ready to go and I'm ready to kind of adapt and all those sorts of things. And I don't want this, I'm, I'm kind of in a lot of ways sort of oversimplifying and, and kind of glossing over a lot of sort of spiritual challenge through that time. And I definitely had hard times in the years following the loss of my vision, but I was able to navigate those things by having this framework of, you know, doing challenges, navigating challenges and moving forward. I once saw an interview with uh, General Stanley McChrystal where he was asked, like, what kind of athlete do you think makes the best soldier? And his answer initially surprised me, but the more I thought about it, it didn't. But he said a long distance runner. 
he just makes the best soldier, at least in this interview that I looked at, uh, that I, I listened to a, a little while back. Is there something about, and I guess, I, again, I, we both are obviously endurance athletes and I, we're, I think we're both biased in this, uh, in this question, yeah. but, but is there something about endurance sports that can teach you something about life, whether it's resiliency, hard work, discipline, uh, that other sports perhaps cannot teach you? Yeah, I'm glad you acknowledge the bias that you and I both have, because I'm <laughs> definitely biased in this regard. And I've always been my swimming career. I was always a distance swimmer. And then I got into long distance triathlon after college and all that sort of stuff. So I'm definitely biased in that regard. But I, I do think so. I think the, the argument I would make is that the, the shorter burst that the training or the, the sport is, the more skill can dominate that. Like if you are for a 50 freestyle in swimming, if you are tall and you are strong and you have, you know, water feel, you're going to be really good at that 50 meter freestyle. And, and definitely the best in the world have honed that skill and they've put in the training and the hours to really kind of dial that in. But, you know, it's really kind of, in essence, a skill dominated, uh, you know, performance, whereas finishing an Ironman requires something else. It, it requires you have to put in time. You have to commit to putting uh, all those miles on the bike and running those distances. And uh, that, I think that that gets back to that sort of what I was talking about, like that that's a vehicle for you to develop all these different things, uh, most of which discipline. Like you really do have to be uh, organized and you really have to commit to every day. I've got to put in this time to get this race done. Um, and it doesn't happen otherwise. And then as you and I both know, like inevitably on either a long distance race or, or, you know, even in the, in the one hour race, in fact, maybe even worse in the one hour race, if you're racing the right way, you're going to hit that moment where you don't have anything left. Hopefully you hit that right at the finish line, but if you miscalculate, it might be a quarter mile out and you really have to figure out how you're going to get that last quarter mile after you've just dumped everything you had over the last hour, four hours, eight hours, whatever it is. And I think that's really where you start to know who you are. And that's really where you, you re for me, I feel like there's this, this battle, like there's the, the person in me who wants to stop and uh, that there's the person in me who's the fiery competitive one who says, don't, and that the battle is never more fierce than when you're a quarter mile out from the finish line and you're just dumped and you have nothing left. Um, and your legs are going to scream at you. We've got to stop. We've got to stop. And you're just going to scream back and say, no, keep pushing that, that battle to me that battle doesn't happen in a 50 meter freestyle. It doesn't happen on a deadlift. It doesn't happen when you're doing dumbbell press or anything else. It happens like at the end of a really lengthy race. And I, that's the measure of a, a person's character to me is can they engage, can they lock horns with that moment and push through and finish hard? And that's the coolest moment of sports to me. You just hit the nail right on the head. I think that last sentence was, uh, gave me goosebumps. Uh, like along like the same lines, I, I I like to ask people this question, and it's it's kind of an abstract question, but it's we're we're, we're touching on it now. Is I look at endurance sports as you know, the, like you said, there's no skill to be acquired in let's say long distance running, right? Like you put one right. foot in front of the other. You know, I'm sure there's a running coach out there who's getting all kinds of crazy about form and yeah. pose running and all that. And fair enough. But at the end of the day, you're putting one foot in front of the nut in front of another. And so the skill you are acquiring is pain threshold, right? Throughout a day. Uh, and so my question to you is like, what is your relationship with pain? 
All right. How do you handle pain when it starts to really bubble up on you in the middle of these uh, these long distance endurance events, whether it's the Olympics or otherwise? Um, and did has your relationship with pain changed from before your accident to post accident? Oh, that's an interesting one. The, I think the I'll take your second one first. I don't think so. I think being an athlete, especially being an endurance athlete, you know, if you're not pushing past the breakdown point, you're not doing it right. And I think I feel like I remember that my one of my first seasons of swimming doing the whole I don't know if you ever did hell week we, we did like a we they called it hell week even when I was an age group swimmer it was like the, the time in between Christmas and New Year's was hell week every year and we had we got t-shirts that said ho 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 hell week kind of thing I thought what a perverse thing this is even at 11 I thought this is crazy but it was like doubles practices we were swimming 10 grand a practice something along those lines it was really quite nuts especially doing it when you're 11 and I was like nervous to do it because I was new to the team. And, Ten, uh, and meaning 10,000 meters for people that don't know. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So these really lengthy, you know, that's it. That's in a sitting. That's like go and swim, swim 10,000 meters in that's one a, practice that's, as that's, an 11-year-old. That's a six-mile like, swim for an 11-year-old. Yeah. And I, my, my dad was like driving me down there. And I was like, what, what happens if I crap out? He's like, well, you're not going to know when you're going to crap out until you crap out. Just go for it and do your best. And it's like. I just remember feeling like super accomplished after I had gotten through that. And from day one, like from meter 1000, I was dead. And I made it through that whole week of just being dead, but going, like you said, one foot in front of the other, one stroke in front of the other, I got through it. And I felt like I got through that. What else can I get through? And so that that's kind of my relationship with pain is like, pain is something that's going to start to tell you that we don't take like your body saying, we don't think you can go any further, but once you've gone through one of those things, your brain knows that you can't. So I look at it as a battle. It's always a battle between my brain and my body. Uh, you know, who's going to win out? Now, that said, as an older athlete, I've gotten somewhat smarter about that. And I do know pain is indicating something. It's indicating an increase of lactic acid or it's indicating that maybe my nutrition is poor. So I do. I listen to it differently now. But, you know, at the end of a race, especially like you, you develop a race plan, you execute a race plan, no matter what, at the end of a triathlon that I'm racing, my goal is to hit the spot of where I'm completely dead. And, and inevitably I never finish, I never finish a race feeling good. If you, if you finish a race feeling good, you messed it up. You didn't give enough as far as I'm concerned. So I, I always finish kind of in that battle in my mind. Like we were just talking about, like my, my quads are going to feel like they're on fire my back is going to hurt. My abs are going to be burnt up. And I, you know, at that point to get that last quarter mile out, it's going to be my brain that gets me across the finish line. So I always look at it as sort of a battle and, you know, sometimes I win and sometimes I lose, but like I said, I'm, I'm competitive and I always want to win that battle. Yeah, I agree more. Uh, the, the one thing I, I would want to add to that is, is the thing that I think had ruined fitness. I'd say this to people all the time was the Rocky movies. Because everyone looks yeah. at every day, if you're training for, let's say, a marathon or anything, everyone looks at every day as it should be like the Rocky montage, like go as hard as you can <laughs> all the time. And just from yeah. like a physiological fitness perspective, yes, there are days you have to put in everything you have, especially on race day, right? That's why race days right. are super special. Uh, but not every day can be the Rocky all out. Yeah. Let me give it everything I have because tomorrow's workout is just as important as today's workout, which was just as important as yesterday's workout. And sometimes right. you have to kind of take the throttle back just a little bit in order to be able to really go to, to give it your best on the days when you're supposed to be going hard. Go yeah, I agree. And 
the, something I've learned, I'm 37 now. I used to think when I was 11, like I can, uh, in one season, I can drop, you know, a lot of time on, in a swimming race, or I can become like the Rocky champion in a, in a matter of six months. I think that, that, that completely has gone away. But on the flip side, you, you start to see, you start to line up a, a couple good seasons in a row and you see the value of sticking with the grind for not only just one season, but like, you know, five years or even 10 years of working at your fitness, you can see sort of a steady incline and you start to understand that the steady grind is really the way that you make long-term progress. You see, I think you see it predominantly in the sport of triathlon and then also in CrossFit, like people who CrossFit for multiple, you know, a long, long, long time, they're able to do things that you're like, wow, how did you get to that point? And it's like, well, I've been doing this for 15 years, that kind of thing. So it's about the, the like slow grind, doing it over, over a long stretch of time. That's where you can really make those big gains. You have to be patient with it. I agree. One of my favorite quotes in life is people overestimate what they can do in a year, but they underestimate what they do in five yeah. years. And like, yeah. I've heard it, I've heard it with like every people overestimate what they can do in a day, but they underestimate what they can do in a week. Like pick the time period you want. And it, it holds true. Cause everyone thinks yeah. that, you know, whatever, whatever that period of time is, everyone has these big grandiose plans and fair enough. I, I applaud people for having goals, but sometimes you have to take a step back and be a little more realistic. Like, all right, do I want to do this thing? Yes, but it's going to take me some time in order to be able to do it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I think a lot of athletes have a hard time seeing beyond the season that they're in Like, you know, the, I'm going to run Boston marathon, or I'm going to do this. It's like, well, you know, if, if you, if you stick with that for three years, for four years, you know, that's, what's great about being in the Olympic Paralympic domain is everyone thinks in four year cycles. And that's a, that's a really great way to sort of orient yourself. It's, it's, it's grinding. It can be really tough. Um, but anybody who's been through one of those cycles, I think comes out on the other end, a lot more mentally tough and certainly a lot more physically capable. Speaking of Olympic cycles, uh, this one was a little bit out of the ordinary. Uh, you had not a four-year cycle this time. We had a five-year because the Tokyo Olympics were were postponed by a year because of uh, COVID-19. That is, I, I can't imagine how devastating that is to many athletes. And I, I'm sure, as as we both know, a lot of uh, high-level athletes are very dialed in and, and borderline yeah. neurotic about when they're going to peak with their fitness. And, and they kind of have to be in a lot of ways, but they're perhaps not as uh, as flexible as they ought to be. And I could see postponing the Olympics, this thing that you've been training for for four years, you're all dialed in, you're ready to peak at the right time. And then all of a sudden, nope, canceled, postponed for a year. Did you, did you struggle with that at all? Oh, yeah, we struggled for sure. Sarah and I were down in uh, Florida for the debut of that season, 2020. And uh, the I think the race was supposed to be on March 15th or so. I uh, remember we were we got down to Florida and that I think Wednesday Trump closed the border with Europe or so Thursday something else happened then Friday the race was supposed to be the next morning we got an email the race is canceled we were within 24 hours of the debut of the season and we got a, a, a note that the race had been canceled and then in the midst of the pandemic we we flew back home I got home and then I was on a whole series of meetings with the USOPC and USA Triathlon about uh, whether the, I, at first the news was that the games were going to be canceled in the light of the COVID pandemic. Um, so there was kind of, therein was some good news about a week and a half later when the IOC said, we're just going to delay the games and the IPC followed in suit. So, but that was kind of a, it was a big blow. To your point, we were, 
we had this plan. We had a long plan. And I, and I, I had I had had in my head that Tokyo was likely going to be the last go around. I really had this triathlon challenge in my brain. And we had really worked hard over the last few seasons to really kind of break out that season, make the team crush the Tokyo Paralympics. And then I was going to go to grad school. Then uh, with the delay, I wasn't going to back out of grad school. So we, we, we moved to Princeton and started school and tried to do triathlon at all at the same time. And I owe an immense debt of gratitude to our mutual friend, my wife, uh, Sarah, for keeping me in it because I was tempted to throw in a towel a bunch of times throughout that time period. Adjusting to school was really tough. Trying to do it on top of training and training the way that I knew I needed to do to, to do well at the Paralympics was almost untenable at times, but she kept me in it and kept encouraging me to stay, stay stick with it. And uh, even as early as this March, my, one of my my, my eventual teammate in Tokyo, Kao Kun, had an incredible race in Yokohama. He won. I think it was his first international win that I don't think anybody saw coming. And I thought, I am going to have a really hard time making the team, making the team against Kyle and then my other teammate, Aaron Scheide. So for it to all come full circle with a win in Wisconsin to make the team, and then, of course, the win in Tokyo was an incredible feeling. And um, it it was really gratifying that, you know, Sarah and I had essentially done it together day in, day out. Her not knowing anything about triathlon before we started dating, for her to jump into it uh, full force. She trains with me every day in our hot, sweaty garage. If I'm on the treadmill, she's on the trainer. If I'm on the trainer, she's on the treadmill. And uh, having her do that, this whole journey with me was really gratifying. Um, it was really sad that she wasn't able to go to Tokyo with me, but we were able to kind of, I think we both knew that the moment was about, about us. And, and we also had the, we had a secret at the time. Um, can I say, uh, I wasn't allowed to talk about it while I was in Tokyo, but I was racing with extra motivation in my heart because, uh, we're expecting our first child in March. So we have a little, a uh, little baby girl on the way. You just gave me goosebumps for the second time in this, uh, this episode. <laughs> Congratulations to you and to your wife, Sarah, who is a very good friend of mine. Sarah grew, Sarah and I grew up across the street from each other in, in Brooklyn, New York. Uh, and she's obviously the, 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 the way we made this, uh, this meeting encounter. But that's, that's fantastic. Good for you guys. Thanks, Tim. We're super excited. And uh, we're, it's homecoming from the Tokyo Games has been really exciting. <laughs> and uh, we've, our house is finally all squared away. And, and we're ready for, for a little baby girl here in, here in March. I have to amend the introduction to uh, to to include future father. It's that's right. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, it, it's wow. Like you 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 don't you just jump in with both feet. You don't <laughs> Olympic right. gold medal, PhD in public policy. Uh, you know, father to be. Uh, that's incredible. Good for you. I, I no, actually we don't, I, we don't mess around. No, no, you don't. No. Uh, I my my question is. Uh, you you're getting your your PhD like we said earlier in public policy. Uh, just we'll we'll end it on this: is why is public service so important to you? Why why is that something that you have clearly dedicated your life toward? I just I think that I going back to I grew up looking at my grandfather's photo on the wall and my grandmother's photo on the wall, them in their uniform. And I, I heard stories of their service uh, to our country at a time of war in World War II. And I've always been imbued with the idea that 
the highest purpose a person can have in this world is to serve others, to dedicate their, you know, their talents or their efforts towards the benefit of somebody else. That just has always been the way that I've understood, you know, I, I think the, the words noble effort, we always talk about noble effort at the Naval Academy, that, that any effort that is offered on behalf of somebody else is a noble effort. And that's, that was core to who I was growing up. It was core to my grandfather and, and me trying to follow his example. It's really core to, you know, the, the way that we train midshipmen at the Naval Academy and at the broader military. And, you know, when I got injured and, and left the service, that doesn't leave me. That's not, it's still a part of me and will always be a part of me. And that's what I've really enjoyed about competing is that I'm not competing for myself. I'm competing to set a positive example. I'm competing to inspire our country. And in my way, in my view, that's a, a way of my ability to continue to serve. And I, I hope that those, those lessons will carry out and other people will latch onto the idea that, again, noble effort is you know, serving someone other than yourself. That's really great. Brad, thank you very much for joining us again. It's been uh, truly an honor to have you on the Leadership Under Fire podcast. I know on behalf of Patty and Jason, we really appreciate your time. We appreciate your service. We appreciate everything that you've been doing and the inspiration the inspiration you've been uh, giving everyone uh, around the world. Well, Tim, thank, uh, first and foremost, thank you for your service and uh, thank you for having me on. And uh, it's been my pleasure, absolutely. Leadership Under Fire podcast provides a platform that helps to prepare performance leaders to navigate the moral, mental, emotional, intellectual, and physical rigors in high-risk and ultra-competitive settings by developing strength of mind, body, character, and critical thought. For more on this, visit leadershipunderfire.com.